So we do have our note sheet in the back. This morning we are in lesson four, working our way through Richard Belcher's book, Prophet, Priest, and King. And last week, Andrew took us through the introduction and of the role of prophet, specifically the role of the prophet in the Old Testament. And this week we're going to wrap up the role of the prophet in the Old Testament, and then the next two weeks we're going to see how Christ fulfills this office of prophet in the New Testament. And so just as a little recap, so the significance of why we look at prophet, priest, and king, going back to Andrew and Pastor Des, what was covered a couple weeks ago, is that we see Christ's work fall under these three major categories as or of Christ the mediator or Christ the redeemer. And so these three offices, prophet, priest, and king, fell under this category of anointing, or you'll hear the word Messiah, right, which is the, the, the verb for to, to pour to pour on. And so with that, just as a, a little bit of a recap, we think of uh, the catechism in order to help us. Okay, so what does that mean, right? We think of Redeemer. What does that mean? And so we look at uh, the, the, the Baptist catechism. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Answer. Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. So it is this revelatory office, this office where revelation is received so we can know God and in particular be saved and know the Lord. But then there's the children's catechism, which is really helpful, right? Like, all right, so why do we need a prophet, right? And that's the question. Why do you need Christ as a prophet? Answer, I need Christ as a prophet because I do not know the will of God for salvation. So God must reveal himself. And the prophet would reveal God to us. And as Andrew covered last week, we see that in the office, I'm sorry, we see that in the text of Deuteronomy 18. That's like, you know, the, the classic text when we think of the prophet in the Old Testament, right? It's, 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 uh, it sticks out. It's kind of like uh, that major foundational pillar. And then we saw um, uh, how that worked with the uh, uh, um, false prophets, what was to happen there, and, and, the, um, and how that prophet was called and, and what the nature of the role or the office of the prophet was throughout the Old Testament. So as we go now, we're going to pick up from, the, uh, fr from that section on the prophet, specifically with Moses, right? So if you remember the Old Testament, right? We got the first five books, Genesis to Deuteronomy. We get to the end of Deuteronomy, and now we're heading into Joshua, right? Joshua is going to lead the people of God into the promised land, uh, as, as God has promised. Um, and then from there, we go into Judges, and then we're going to go into some of the 
uh, what are called uh, uh, the, the former prophets or the prophets that, that didn't write, right? Like Elijah or Nathan. And that's the beginning of um, when we had kings in Israel, like King Saul and King David, Solomon, etc. So, so with that, on your notes, we see the emergence of the prophets in the history of Israel. So thinking about the role and office of the prophet as it develops now in the biblical timeline, now turning to the book of Joshua. So, so what happens when Moses dies? Right? Moses dies the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And, and there's, a, there's an important text in, uh, in, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 34, where in verses 10 through 12, he says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. But the key thing here is in verse 10, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. And again, Andrew covered some of this when we were dealing with Deuteronomy 18 last week. So, uh, but, but that's important to know as we start to then go into the role of the prophets, right? So in the book of Joshua, turn with me. So go, go to the, you know, go, let's go to the beginning, right? Go to Joshua and turn with me to Joshua chapter three. So Joshua is leading the people into the land of Canaan. And God spoke face to face with Moses. Joshua is now to come in the footsteps of Moses to lead God's people. And God directly speaks to Joshua as the leader of God's people as they go to conquer the land of Canaan. So look with me at Joshua chapter 3, verse 7. If I can have someone read uh, Joshua 3, 7. Perfect. So we see that God is going to have a similar relationship with Joshua as he did with Moses. And there will be this revelation from the Lord. And, and we see that like in, in Joshua 7 with, um, uh, 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 with Achan, right? And, and God revealing these things to Joshua, um, to the allotment of the tribes. There's multiple things that God reveals to Joshua during this time period. But this is a transitional time period, right? As it was, it was always pointing forward to life in the land. So then we come to the book of Judges. So if you'll turn with me, and we'll, we'll, be, we'll be flipping through multiple books this morning. So keep your, your fingers wet from that standpoint for multiple pages. So we go into the book of Judges. And so what's the reality in Joshua, right? They did not fully conquer the land. They did not fully drive out the Canaanites, right? And that leads us into the book of Judges. And so um, uh, turn with me to, uh, to Judges chapter 2. So what is the reality that takes place from this failure to drive out the Canaanites? And let's read Judges 2 verses 1 through 5. If I could have a volunteer, someone willing to read Joshua 2. 
or Judges 2, 1 through 5? Great. Excellent. So, notice God's message. And this is going to be a similar outline for future prophetic messages. We see, one, God's covenantal deliverance of his people, right? The deliverance out of Egypt. Two, their disobedience, right? The people's disobedience. And three, the Lord's calling them back at the consequence of cursing and exile. So now turn with me a couple books more to the book of Judges, and let's, let's go to Judges 6, verses 7 through 10. So just remember that. That's kind of like a little, a little outline, right? We're going to see that over and over again as we work our way through the prophets, through the rest of the Old Testament. So uh, Judges chapter 6, and let's read verses 7 through 10. If I could have another volunteer. Excellent. Right, so now we see the Lord sends a prophet, right, um, in verse 8, to the people when they cried to him. And we see that the message is similar to the earlier message of the angel of the Lord. God has delivered his people from Egypt. He's given them the land, but they've not obeyed him. And the role of the prophet was to speak God's warning to God's people... And this goes all the way back to Moses, right? And this is, like I said, going to be a prominent feature, right? As we look at and think about once Israel gains a king and division in Israel all the way up until exile to Assyria and to Babylon. So now we come to the seminal figure when we uh, um, are thinking of Samuel. And Samuel, the prophet Samuel, is a transitional figure standing between the period of judges and the period of the monarchy. Or the monarchy is the period of the kings, right? Starting with King Saul, and then it would, you know, go, go on with, uh, with the lineage, David, Solomon, etc. So he is this, this transitional figure. And not only that, Samuel almost takes on multiple categories, right? He takes on the category of a priest takes on the category of a judge, and he also takes on this category of prophet. So turn with me. So let's, let's go one more book over now, right? So kind of fast forward through Judges. And now let's go to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 3. And 
I'll read verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So remember remember from um, last week, when we think of the role of a prophet, there were two words that would be used to describe a prophet. There was seer, right? And so the Lord would reveal to the prophet in a vision or a dream, right? And so that's where we get that word seer. But then also prophet means to proclaim, right? There was another Hebrew word and it meant to proclaim. So when we see here in verse one, it, we, we see this idea that the word of the Lord was, was rare. There was no vision, right? Um, the, the, the work of, of, of prophets in this time was minimal. And this is during the time when Eli is priest, right? When, when, when Samuel was being raised up. And so now look with me in verses four and five. We see uh, the Lord calling Samuel and uh, Samuel mistaking it, thinking, thinking this is Eli calling him to come and get up. And then after multiple calls, uh, we, we look at um, uh, 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 verse seven, where he says, now Samuel did not know the Lord or did not yet know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. In verse eight, and the Lord called Samuel again the third time and he rose, went to Eli. And then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. If he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in this place. And so in, we see here the calling of Samuel. Now, um, we see Samuel submit to this call, right, where, where he receives revelation in, in verse 10, right, where he says, uh, and Samuel said, speak for your servant here. So we see this submissive role where Samuel is, you know, willingly takes on this office that, that the Lord puts on him. But it's interesting, right? And could you imagine the tension, right? So what's the first word you get as a prophet, right? It's the, the family you're staying with, and it's a message of judgment on them. Yeah, so you could imagine, imagine the weight of that. And yet, nevertheless, we see that in... Um, in verses 19 through 21, uh, verse 19, and Samuel grew, and, uh, and, um, uh, and, and so, I'm sorry, in verses 19 through 21, we then see how the Lord then um, establishes Samuel. In verse 19, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So again, just putting all of these concepts together, we're seeing this come together in this transitional figure of Samuel. So we see Joshua. We start working our uh, uh, um, way through the, the, the book of Judges. Um, and then we get to Samuel. And Samuel's going to lead us into the monarchy. And that's going to be really important because the, prophet, the prophets will take on a very important role once kings are established in Israel. So, which leads us to our next point um, on, on, on your notes. Um, uh, so we've, we've covered um, uh, the emergence of the prophets in the history of Israel, uh, point D. Now we're on uh, point one underneath that, the prophet and the king. So the establishment of a king in Israel also meant 
the elevating of the role of the prophet. And, and this, is, this is really important. And, and if, if you remember from, um, I believe it was Deuteronomy 17, and it said when you get a king in Israel, and it provided regulations for the role of the king, the office of the king, and one of them was the importance of the law, right? That the king was to read the law. And now when the, when, when this, when the king is established, the prophet is God's spokesman, not just to the people, right? That'd be generally, but almost specifically for the king. And so we see this with Samuel in the monarchy, right? And, and, and we're, we're familiar with the story, right, in, in 1 Samuel, where the, uh, the people want a king. They want to be like the other nations, right? They request a king, and God gives them a king, and, and it's Saul. And Saul is anointed king. And just, and, and like we said earlier, that word anointing is important, right? Because that word anointing, that word, it's the, it's the verb for the noun Messiah, right? Which means to pour. And so when Saul is anointed king, um, and, and, that, and, that, and that's what's going to take place. Samuel lays out the importance of, of the people and the king obeying the word of the Lord, even in the midst of the people's uh, um, uh, um, um, sinful request for the for a king, so they could be like the other nations, so they could have that security like the other nations, where the other nations found their security. So turn with me to First Samuel. Go a couple chapters over. Let's go to First Samuel twelve. So again, building on this idea of the prophet, uh, or, or, or the Old Testament prophets, and seeing as we're leading up to the, to the role of the prophet and the king. And 1 Samuel 12, let's look at verse 19. We'll read verses 19 through 25. 1 Samuel 12, 19 through 25. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people, for his great namesake, because... It has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king, right? So that, that, that pinnacle of the people, the king. So what happens, right? And unfortunately, we know the story with Saul. It gets worse with him. And so I, I, want, I want us to look at two examples. So uh, go the next chapter over, 1 Samuel 13, 13. And I'll just read this real quick. 1 Samuel 13, 13. We see two examples 
where, where verse 25 is, is, uh, is, is realized. If you, if, if you act wickedly, 1 Samuel 13, 13. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. And this is related to um, uh, uh, Saul's, as it says, um, uh, Saul's unlawful sacrifice. And so we see the king not keep the command of the Lord. And so Samuel's role, right? He goes and provides that warning. He confronts the king. And he loses the prospect of an eternal kingdom. Now look with me secondly. So then we go two more chapters over to 1 Samuel 15. And this is where the Lord rejects Saul as king. And it comes because Saul does not obey in destroying the Amalekites. But what does he do? He keeps the king, right? And so, um, and not only that, but he also also keeps the spoil when all of them were to be destroyed. And as a result, God rejects Saul as king. So, so think about that. And, and this is really important, right? Because this is, this is why the role of the prophet and the king in Israel have a really important relationship. The king must submit himself to the word of God, or the king will be judged by God. So what's the implication? This means that the king must submit to the prophet who speaks the word of God. So the king must submit to the prophet who speaks the word of God. And we see the reality of what happens, right? Saul rejects the word of the Lord, and so God rejects Saul as king. So now we're going to shift, right? So we shift from Saul to David over First and Second Samuel. And the interesting reality is, not many prophets are mentioned, are, are, are recorded over this time period during David, David's kingship. And, uh, and um, Richard Belcher, in, in his book, he, you know, he provides you know, a little bit of perspective. He thinks you know, maybe this is perhaps um, that David, you know, for the most part, has been a godly king um, in, in, in spite of some, of some of the sins that are recorded, as opposed to some of the other kings and their idolatry. So it's very possible that could be a reason why it's 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 not um, explicit. But what we do see with the prophets as they relate to David, we see one prophet in particular um, that that is especially prominent, and that's the prophet David. And and we and we we think of I'm sorry, not the prophet David, the prophet Nathan. My apologies. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. All right. We're good. So, um, and, and, and what was that role that Nathan the prophet had with David, right? You, we, we, we think about in 2 Samuel. Um, uh, we think um, in two ways. We think of, one, the oath that God swore with David 
that there will that there will be a king on the throne, um, and there's an eternal kingdom that will be a son of David. Who was the one who delivered that message? It was the prophet Nathan, right? And so, what what an honor, right? What an amazing thing. But then, God also used the prophet Nathan to reveal David's sin regarding Bathsheba. So specifically, those those are two major things. So specific to the Davidic covenant, the the prophet Nathan revealed uh, from God why David will not build the temple, why he will not build the house of the Lord. But he did say that he'd build him a house or a dynasty, right, with the promise of a descendant who would sit on the throne forever. But regarding David's sin with Bathsheba, Nathan confronted him. And he also pronounced God's forgiveness, but told him that the child will die from this unholy union and affirmed God's love for Solomon, another son whom Bathsheba bore to David. Now there's, a, there's another prophet who is mentioned in connection with this early king, with King David, and that is the prophet Gad. So what did, what did, what did this prophet do? Well, he helped David when, uh, when David was fleeing Saul in 1 Samuel 22. He also presented the word of the Lord to David concerning the punishments that, uh, that David would choose after the census in 2 Samuel 24. So when David wanted to measure and see how strong his kingdom was, and he did a census, Gad went and told David, you need to choose your punishment. And lastly, he also encouraged David to build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna to halt the punishment in 2 Samuel 24. So just a little bit from a content standpoint, right, where you see the prophets. So remember, remember early on in Judges, we saw that outline as it related specifically to deliverance then sin and then the possibility for cursing and exile. But we also see it expand a little bit, that the prophet would also reveal promises that we would, um, and not just expectations of judgment. But there's another important thing I want to draw out here. And that is, there's little evidence from the text that Nathan or Gad spoke to the people. Their ministry was mainly to the king. In fact, in 2 Samuel 24:11, Gad is called David's seer. These prophets functioned like court advisors, but it is clear that they speak the word to the king. All right, so now we're going to shift. So we went from Saul to David, now from David to Solomon. Not many prophets were involved in the reign of Solomon. Nathan uh, was involved in the establishment of Solomon's kingship, or I'm sorry, um, uh, um, uh, 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 or I'm sorry, Nathan was involved in the establishment of of, uh, Solomon's kingship, but the Lord also spoke directly to Solomon at multiple times. And one of the things that happens as we get to 1 Kings 11, the division of Israel comes as a result of Solomon's sin. He marries multiple foreign women 
and then commits multiple acts of idolatry. And so that's important, right? As we see, that then leads, not, not during Solomon's time, but after Solomon. And how does God do this? How does he deliver this news about the division coming in Israel? He raises up the prophet Ahijah to tell Jeroboam that he will have ten tribes of Israel in his separate kingdom. And this, and this theme is going to pick up, right? Just like it did in Judges. This issue of idolatry, and then specifically with the prophet and the king. So once the kingdom was divided, the prophets became outsiders to the royal court, to, the, to, to access to the king many times because, because of the message. What did they bring? They brought a message of God's judgment to the people and to the king. And God in this time raised up many faithful prophets to serve in these early days of the divided kingdom. And so, Jeroboam I, the first king of the northern kingdom, right? The, the one that had the ten tribes, if you will, right? When they were divided, set that kingdom's path on the road to apostasy. How did he do this? What did he do? He raised up new centers for worship. He raised up new altars in Dan and Bethel and then raised up priests so that way people wouldn't need to go down to Jerusalem to the temple, but instead he would be sufficient in his own kingdom. So um, turn with me. So let, let, let's go first, second Samuel. I know we're kind of bypassing these books in order to to cover, you know, the uh, the width of the Old Testament. So first Kings and let's turn to chapter 12. First Kings chapter 12. All right, 1 Kings 12, verses 25 to 33. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people to go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests 
of the high places that he had made. When he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, and the month that he had devised from his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel, and went up to the altar to make offerings. So see, and and like this is like a, a watershed moment in the history of Israel, right? This this is the ultimate downfall that leads them to captivity with Assyria not much later. And really the height of this apostasy is reached in the days of Ahab and Jezebel with their commitment to Baal worship. And this false commitment to Baal spilled over into the southern kingdom. We see this in in 2 Kings 8 and 2 Kings 11. And many kings in the southern kingdom were also disobedient to God and encouraged false worship. We think of kings like Ahaz and Manasseh and Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. And how does God respond? God in His patience responded to this covenant disobedience with His covenant people by raising up His covenant prosecutors, the prophets, who spoke this message in very, very difficult situations. Alright, so on your notes, we've, we've seen you know the transitional period, now we've seen the king and the prophet, so now the school of the prophets. And really, the, the prophet's role becomes more significant in the emergence of the school of the prophets, right? So we're kind of building up in this, in this time period, uh, in the early days, and, and uh, early and mid-time of, of, the, uh, of the time of the kings, of the monarchy. And really, we're going to come to the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and then the legacy of the writing prophets. And the writing prophets are really the ones that a lot of us think of when we think of a prophet, right? We think of like Isaiah or Jeremiah. So, the school of the prophets. So, the first mention of the school of the prophets comes in 1 Samuel chapter 10. And this is when Saul is anointed as king. Additionally, we also have uh, later in 1 Samuel 19, another incident in Saul's life where, where, um, where there's the school of the prophets and um, Samuel is announced as the head or leader of this group. It's like a passing comment that Samuel is the head of the school of the prophets. So when you put some of these things together, it's possible to think that this group was initially organized by Samuel since the word of the Lord was, was rare in those days. So that's the origin. So what, what was the function of the, 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 the school of the prophets as we see in this time period? Well, the school of the prophets were associated with prophesying and they were associated with the Holy Spirit. And we see those two themes overlap. In fact, the, the whole idea of anointing and the Holy Spirit are, are themes that will be uh, intertwined throughout all of Scripture. But we see this activity here. And so let me read uh, 1 Samuel 10, 10, 10, uh, just, just as an example. When uh, they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, that, that's Saul, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and what was the result? And he prophesied among them. And so this, uh, the, the phrase prophesying is less clear in, in, in other texts of the Old Testament as we think about the school of the prophets. And, and it's created uh, some confusion as people have tried to weigh this through. They've looked at 
What did that mean in other, uh, other literature outside the scripture when it would refer to these? And there's been some interaction there. But we at least know, uh, we see that prophesying had this proclamatory, proclamatory um, uh, result. Um, it, it, additionally, we also see that one of the implications was that the king was to be subordinate to the spirit and the word. Right? We see the spirit come upon Saul, and then Saul prophesies. The king submits. Um, and then, uh, we won't have time, but in 1 Chronicles 25, there's also a strong connection with the school of the prophets when we think of the, the, the theme of prophecy and musical instruments. Where we see these, these two ideas come strongly uh, together. And I'll, what I'll do is I'll just read 1 Chronicles 25.1. David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who prophesied with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals, the list of those who did the work and of their duties. And then it goes on. Uh, but we see this idea of prophesying and in musical instruments. So we see that it's, it's connected with music, with praise, but it's also... It includes warning and admonition. And so um, the School of the Prophets was a community, so there's that, there's that communal aspect, there's that fellowshipping aspect. Um, we see that um, when it, um, especially in the time of uh, Elijah and Elisha, um, if you guys remember Elijah, uh, uh, he was uh, training Elisha to, to, to come in after him. God raised him up. But Elisha was one of the sons of, of the prophets, right? So we see this like connection um, of these groups between the sons of the prophets, and now as we lead into um, Elijah and Elisha. So we saw the origin and function of the school of prophets. So now we'll take a quick minute and look at the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. So two seminal figures when we think about prophets. So the back-to-back ministries of Elijah and Elisha are significant for the history of Israel, but they also have implications for redemptive history. And, and when we say that redemptive history, we're looking at like that grand overall big picture view of the Bible, right? So just as Moses is associated with the law, right? The, the first five books, the Torah. So Elijah, the prophet, is associated with the prophets. We see this in Malachi Four, verses 4 through 6. And, and, and it makes us think about the text in Matthew 17. Right? Remember the transfiguration. Who were the two people next to Jesus? We had Moses and we had Elijah. Right, The law and the prophets. Two seminal figures. And so we see this, this connection in both the Old and New Testaments. The ministry of Elijah demonstrated what a true prophet should be as he stood faithfully for the Lord and against the worship of false gods. So Elijah, if you will, had a very confrontational ministry, and that was because of the idolatry of the kingdom. But we almost see a little bit of a different direction with his successor, with Elisha. So Elisha, who was to come in the footsteps of Elijah, received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And he was noted for its many miracles, which established him as an authentic prophet and true successor to Elijah. 
But these miracles focused on assisting and helping God's people. In, in contrast to the role of Elijah, which was more of condemnation and judgment. It's very interesting. As we will see, Elijah was, was mainly used by God to confront his people in their worship of Baal. Elisha's ministry emphasized encouraging the faithful remnant and reminding people that God is the one who delivers. And this will set up an interesting parallel with Elijah and Elisha. And then when we fast forward to the New Testament with John the Baptist and Jesus. So on, on, your, on your notes, we turn to point four. So we've seen... Uh, the monarchy, um, the, the, the prophet and the king, the school of the prophets, the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and now the writing prophets. Right? And it's really hard to um, overemphasize the role of the writing prophets. The writing prophets are uh, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then the minor prophets, right? Daniel, Hosea, Amos, etc., and these prophets left written, written records of their ministry. But the, uh, but the oral prophets, um, or what we call the former prophets, right? Nathan, Ahijah, Elijah, Elisha, they left no records that survived, right? And, that, and that's like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, etc. Where they don't have you know, major books you know, left like Isaiah or Jeremiah. So how are the writing prophets depicted? Well, they're depicted as heralds of one, covenant curses and judgment, and two, heralds of deliverance and salvation, this, this future deliverance of God's people, this future deliverance of salvation. In fact, in this role, uh, like we look at Ezekiel as an example, he's called a watchman. And what was the role of a watchman? He was to be on the wall, and he was to see any impending, uh, any impending attack, and he was to faithfully warn the people to prepare. And so God uses this illustration for Ezekiel as a prophet who's responsible to warn Judah of their sin and pending judgment. If he fails to proclaim as God's prosecuting attorney, not only would the people die, but the prophet would be held responsible for their blood, for their death. So next on your notes, we see E, opposition to the prophets. And I think when we think about the prophets, this becomes a major theme that we can think about because of where the people were and how their hearts had turned. It was very, it's very, and it's very easy for us to identify with them, with that spirit that was willing to stand up for God in the face of, of, of consequence, of turmoil, uh, to, to stand up uh, for, for what was right in the face of opposition. And that's what they showed. They showed this utmost, utmost, up, I can't speak, utmost commitment to the Lord above everything else, right? 
for the sake of the truth of God's word, for his revelation. And for time's sake, what we'll do, I just briefly want us to think about Jeremiah. Jeremiah is an excellent example who really pictures this opposition, how he was put out uh, multiple times where the people from from the king's court, where the people wanted nothing to do with him, uh, the mocking, the ridicule. uh, He was considered a traitor. um, uh, He was was put down a well, um, uh, saw himself as a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. And this was the experience of many of God's prophets during, during this time. So next on your notes, so we see that was the prophets in opposition. So now we see the prophet in prayer. And normally when we think of prayer, or we think of this idea of intercession, we think of it under the office or category of priest, right? That the, the, the priest not only is doing sacrifices, but also prays for the people. But we also see this overlap, like in Genesis 20 in verse 7. If you'll turn back with me real quick. Genesis 20 verse 7. Where he says, when this is where God uh, is speaking to Abimelech. And he says, now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. Interesting, right? It's because he's a prophet and it's like, and that's why he's going to pray for you, right? So, so there's this intimate connection between the role of the prophet and prayer. And, and we see this throughout the book of Genesis. Um, and then throughout the Old Testament. In fact, j- just going to Jeremiah as an example, I'll read. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, in fact, uh, the expectation was that the prophets would be praying for these people as they're delivering this message, even while they're rejecting the message. They're praying for this people. But it got to the point right, where they had been interceding and pleading with God to show mercy to the people instead of showing them the judgment they deserve, that it's, it's almost shocking, but the Lord then tells Jeremiah to, to not pray for the people, to, to stop, because the people were heading in to judgment, that they had, that they had gone and reached that point. And he says in Jeremiah seven sixteen, as for you, do not pray for this people. Or lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. So it's almost like that was the normal pattern, and then God had to provide a specific word that, hey, with Israel, with where they are, it's done. The line is in the sand. Do not pray for them. So lastly on your notes, we saw the prophet in prayer, and now lastly on your notes, the coming of a future prophet and this is really where it's going to lead into next week uh, or the next two weeks when we when we think about christ fulfilling this role as the ultimate prophet right and going back to what um, um andrew taught on last week 
Deuteronomy 18, that God will raise up a prophet like Moses, right? And then, like we read earlier this morning in Deuteronomy 34, where it says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And so, throughout the Old Testament, this theme will pick up. In Isaiah 61, it's the servant of the Lord, and the Spirit is upon him. Because he has anointed me, right? Keyword, anointed me to bring good news, right? That's proclamation to the poor. Uh, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Keep going. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, right? So we see this prophetic figure who is anointed with the Spirit to come in this future age. So with that, I know that was a lot of material, and you guys were amazing uh, to, 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 get, to get through that. So I know, Harrison, I think you had your hand up. Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah, no, exactly. Nope, that's excellent. So, um, does anyone have any questions or, or, or thoughts? I know that was a lot of material, um, just trying to build and help develop this, this role, this office of prophet. And then, you know, in the, in the next two weeks, we're going to cover how Christ fulfills this, this office. So, any questions or 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 input. I just appreciated when you talked about uh, Christ's transfiguration. Yes. Um, with Moses and Elijah being there, I never understood. I'm like, why those two? But yes. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. That, that putting together the idea of Old Testament revelation kind of summed up in those two, yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. All right, sounds great. Well, let's go to the Lord. Let's thank him for our time, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for um, your word, and thank you for your prophets that you had raised up, who revealed your will to us, specifically um, so that we could know you by your word and by your spirit and be saved in in a saving relationship with you. We pray that you would bless us as we go to enter corporate worship together, Um, as we sing and pray and hear the word preached, that you would continue to work into our hearts faith and love and that we would respond in closer fellowship and communion with you. In Jesus' name, amen.